Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at uh, this issue of how great, just like we were just singing, how great is our God, was our first week. And we did this little tour of the Milky Way galaxy, started looking at God's construction of our solar system, um, looked at some really, really big stars that are part of our galaxy. And then the second week, we looked at how great the fall as we examined what it looked like for man to fall from God's perfect creation. And the last week, we looked at the issue of justification. What does it mean when God rescued us? How great the rescue that he reached out and brought us back in again. Well, today we're going to look at how great the future as we wrap this little four-part four short study up. And many times, like Michael was talking about earlier, Christians tend to forget. As believers who come to church, we tend to forget about what's in store for us. So what we're going to talk about this morning is heaven and specifically what God has in store for us as we think of this inheritance that's waiting for us. So I'm going to uh, remind you of where we are at just briefly. We're told according to Scripture that we've been engaged in this great battle. It's been taking place here on planet Earth because we see in Genesis 3-4, you see this on the screen, Satan said to our ancestors in deceiving Adam and Eve, you will not die. But God said, yeah, you will. There will be death. You surely will die. If you die in your sins believing that I'm not he, you're done for. So you've got to decide who's telling the truth. Is God the one that's communicating to us and telling us the truth? Or is Satan the one that's communicating and telling the truth? Well, I know where I stand. I know that God is the God who does not lie. And we see the evidence of death all around us. We constantly see death and we're reminded on a daily basis that death is part of the world that we live in. So what we're going to look at this morning is that we can know exactly what happens to us when we die. According to God's word, it's very specific. And you might be familiar with some of what we're going to look at this morning because we studied the book of Revelation together a couple of years ago. Some of this will pop back in your mind again as you're refreshed on it. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your own Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 20 and Revelation chapter 21 and Revelation chapter 22. And we're just going to kind of do an overview because those three chapters contain the bulk of what the Bible says about what heaven looks like and what's in store for us. So if you don't mind putting your finger there, we're just going to look at what John saw when he was given a glimpse of heaven. He says this in verse 11 of chapter 20. You'll see it on the screen as well. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Now, we understand that specifically when he's looking at this great white throne, he's using his favorite word again. John likes to use this word great, which is the word megas. And he's saying, I see this megas throne, and there's someone seated on it. Well, we're immediately reminded of what we looked at last week with the issue of justification. And, and justification means that there's a judge, and the judge makes the decision. So we've got a judge sitting on a throne, just like last week. We talked about God putting some on his left and some on his right. The goats he put on his left, the sheep he put on his right. Well, we're in this scene again. And John says there's this megas throne, which in the Bible speaks of significance and majesty and authority. But then he also says it's white. Well, in the Bible, that means purity and holiness and justice when you see white associated with the throne. So that tells me that the verdict that's coming from this throne is going to be absolutely righteous and absolutely just. Well, why is that important? Because if eternity is on the line and you're standing before the throne, 
You want to know that the one who's sitting on that judge's throne is going to be able to make decisions about your eternal destiny. So we're told that's God's nature and character. Deuteronomy 32.4 says this, His work is perfect, for all His ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. So right away we learn nothing compels God to act justly, it's just who He is. Justice is His very nature. Now, if a court is going to issue a verdict that's going to determine your eternal destiny, there's some things that should be um, true of that courtroom. And I've come up with four things that I thought should be true of a courtroom to be able to render a verdict that's infallible. First of all, it requires an infallible judge. That's our God. Second, it requires a judge who has a comprehensive knowledge of all the details That's our God. He has a knowledge of all the details of your life. Thirdly, it requires laws that are indisputable. Our laws are disputable all the time. People constantly file appeals process. But God's laws cannot be disputed. They're unquestionable. And here's the fourth thing. It requires the authority to back up the verdict. And God has the authority to do that. So, John says, I saw this one who sat on the throne. Who is this one who he calls him who sat upon it? Well, the hymn is Jesus, none other than Jesus, the almighty Son of God. We're told that God himself will not judge you, but Jesus will judge you. That's what Scripture tells us. Look with me on the screen, John 5, 22. Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Now, his presence is so overwhelming that John says in verse 11 that earth and heaven flee from him. They literally flee from his presence. Earth and heaven fled. So John sees this amazing judge on his megas throne, which is pure white, and he says, earth and heaven flee from him. And what's he describing here? This is astonishing. He's describing the uncreation of our universe. Everything is going to evaporate and go away. And this is astonishing. But what we know is that our planet, our earth, is contaminated, contaminated with sin, not just polluted physically, but it's contaminated with a sin environment. And God can't dwell where there's sin, so our earth literally needs to go away. This is what Scripture tells us, 2 Peter 3.13. According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Literally, physically, a new planet. God's ultimate green program, okay? He's going to create a new earth. That's what we're told. This is meaning that there will be a violent ending to planet earth. According to God's word, it's going to evaporate. Let me show you what Donald Barnhouse says about this because it's kind of a violent thing. Don Barnhouse says this, There is to be an end of the material heavens and earth, which we know, It is not that they are to be purified or rehabilitated, but that the reverse of creation is to take place. They are to be uncreated. As they came from nothing at the word of God, they are to be sucked back into nothingness by the same word of God. So what John's describing here is extraordinary. It's unearthly. So Peter went one step further, and he told us that everything around us, it's going to burn. Look with me on the screen, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So literally, a vanishing of everything that we've ever known. 
And what we're left with is one reality at this point. God on his throne. That's all John saw. He said, I saw this great one on this megas throne. Heaven and earth are gone literally. And there's a distinct group of people now that are summoned before him. Go with me to verse 12. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So these books are actually placed in this courtroom scene that we've been talking about. And the books are opened, and it's indisputable proof beyond question. And these books contain everything that was ever done, every thought, every word, every deed, every action, because our God understands everything. And these books that are opened are actions of unmistakable evidence. Now, why is that necessary? Because actions prove your faithfulness or your unfaithfulness, loyalty or disloyalty. And the actions will be measured against God's standard. And God's standard is the highest one because he demands payment for every person's sin. Now, here's the truth. Scripture says that the believers in Christ will not stand before this throne. You as a believer will not be judged. What we're talking about is the dead in Christ. It says the dead were judged. Those who were dead to Christ stand before this white throne, and gratefully, you and I don't sit on the white throne, so we don't decide who stands before him and who doesn't. But what we understand from Scripture is believers, when they die, immediately enter into the presence of Christ. These non-believers will stand before him, and in his sight, nothing is missed. So just so we're really clear, what happens when you die is very knowable. A believer immediately goes into the presence of God, enters into the inheritance. That's a word you need to remember today, inheritance. And a non-believer immediately goes into this holding place called Hades, what we use in the English language as hell. And it's a place of torment, but before that individual comes before the judgment, this white throne judgment we're looking at, they stay in hell, then God summons them into his presence, and he judges them according to these things that are written in these books. So, that's going to go away now. We're going to talk about heaven specifically because what we want to know is what does God have in store for us? We've put the judgment behind us. What's waiting for us as believers in Christ? Well, we understand according to Revelation 21.1 that there's something new that's going to be created and heaven is an actual place, not a place of spiritual consciousness, but a physical place and God's creating this for you to dwell in. Look with me on the screen. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now John loves this word new. He uses it a lot. It's the word kainos, and it means something brand new, fresh, never been seen before. No one's laid their eyes on it on this side of eternity. And so the old creation has passed away. New creation comes into existence, the first heaven and the first earth. Go with me to verse 2. And he says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So we're going to get a description now of the capital city of eternity. This, what he's describing here, is not heaven itself, but it's a cube, as you're going to discover. And it's a specific city. He calls it holy because it's been set apart for God's purposes. So he calls it the New Jerusalem, but it's not heaven, it's heaven's capital. So when you think of city, you think of city life. And when you think of city life, you think of actions, social relationship. There's a buzz to the city. 
So we think of people in social relationships. And he uses very specifically this word city, and he says that God is the builder of it. As a matter of fact, look with me on the screen at Hebrews 11.10. The city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You love architecture? God loves architecture. He's called the technites. Scripture calls him that. Look with me at the screen. The definition for architect is technites, meaning he's a craftsman. God is a creator. So he's preparing this place for us, and we know that when believers die, they immediately go to this heavenly city that we're about to get a description of, where Jesus has gone before us to prepare a place. Let me remind you of that, John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. But do you notice that he said it comes down as a bride adorned for her husband? Guys, you remember what your wives look like on your wedding day? You're standing up at the altar. Your wife comes down the aisle and she's in her wedding gown. She was adorned for her husband. The most beautiful day of her life. The white gown, the veil. We see this description that John's using here and it immediately comes to our mind. Yeah, that's a beautiful image. A bride adorned for her husband. That's what I'm looking at. So he uses this word cosmos. I know you're probably familiar with this word if you've been here at any length of time, but it means um, it, the, the orderly arrangement of things. When you see the definition on the screen, think of a woman with her cosmetics. So you, you can understand that, guys. You just came to church this morning. You waited for your wives to put on their cosmetics. It's an order, arran- orderly arrangement of beauty. God orderly has arranged this place, the cosmos. He's put this decoration in order, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So if your wife took a little bit of time putting on her cosmetics this morning, she's just being biblical, okay? You just got to be patient, guys. Just wait for them. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. They're being like God, putting things in order. So let's go to verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. You notice that I put a 1, 2, and a 3 up there on the screen? He's among them. He will dwell among them. He will be among them. See, in just that one sentence, the the truth is so staggering that this loud voice from heaven yells it out three times. God is among them. Why is that amazing? Because at Eden, at the fall, as we saw a couple weeks ago, God was no longer among men. We've never known God to be among us. We've not experienced that. So this loud voice says, God is among them. And he says it three times because he wants us to get it down. That's part of the promise of heaven. Go with me to verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. you have any issues that you struggle with throughout the course of the week? Maybe some physical dehabilitating issue in your life? financial issues, relationship issues. John needs to use negatives to describe what's not there because we won't know those things. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no relationship issues. There's no anguish. There's no grief. See, it's totally beyond human standing, so he has to use negative words to help us understand this in the English language just so we can get it in our mind of what's not there. And it's the tenderness that comes out of this. Do you notice who's wiping away the tears? 
He, meaning God. Now, I know how close I had to get to my children when I would wipe away a tear from their eyes. When they were little, you'd have to cradle their head in the palm of your hand just to wipe the tears off the cheek. Well, how close does God have to get to you to wipe those tears? Yes, He's the great God, lofty and seated on the throne, but we're told He also will wipe away tears. Well, what's going on here? This is the reversal of the curse that was placed on creation. And you'll be given this glorified, sin-free, perfect body. There's nothing known of illness. You won't be subject to pain of any kind. So God stamps it by putting this word behold at the end. And He says, behold, I'm making all things new. And when God says behold, you really want to pay attention to the Bible. It's like an exclamation point. Hey, pay attention. I'm making everything new. Who could declare that and back it up? Well, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the only one that could do that. So in verse 7, he says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So I want you to remember the word inheritance as we work through this description this morning, because you have this promise. You will inherit what we're about to look at. That's God's commitment to you. That's why it was written by Peter that we have obtained an inheritance. You'll see that in the screen. 1 Peter 1.4 We have obtained an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. Anybody here in maybe the last five years lose a family member or a friend? Just a show of hands. Somebody that's passed away. Wow, that's a lot of hands. And the same was true in the 9 o'clock and in the Saturday night service. A very large percentage of the crowd gathered has lost someone in the last five years. They have this promise. We have this promise who remain on earth. That if they died as a believer in Jesus Christ, they inherited what you're about to look at instantly in the presence of God. So let's see what John saw. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. First thing he notices, it's got the glory of God. It's the first most distinguishing feature, the Shekinah glory. And it's just blazing with God's presence. As a matter of fact, he uses the word brilliant. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago when we started doing that tour of the galaxy, you saw that one very, very, very large planet called Canis Majoris. We called it the big dog because it would take 1,100 years to fly an airplane around it at 900 kilometers an hour. It was that huge. That's how big our God thinks. So that, that description of a luminary like that, a giant bright star, that's the same description that's used here when he uses the word foster. It, it was brilliant, John said. And it, it lit up the sky. That's the description because God's glory is radiating out from it. Go with me to verse 12. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. So there's his favorite word again, a mega high wall. It's got a, a great wall. But notice it has specific dimensions, as you're going to see, which means it has limits, which means it can be entered and exited. It can be departed. Now, the truth is, it's more than what's described here, but it is material creation. 
And did you notice there's not just one pearly gate? There's 12 pearly gates. So the next time you hear somebody making a joke about being at the pearly gate, you can take them to Revelation 21 and say, wait, wait, God's word says there's 12 of those. And, and John is looking at this in just shock, saying at the entrance, we see the legacy of God's work here on earth because he's taken the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel and he emblazoned them right on those 12 gates. But he also notices something in verse 14. He said, the city was built on a foundation, and it has a legacy too. Look with me at that. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So everything's anchored on God's work of the church, the 12 apostles who did the work, and John seeing his own name carved right into the wall. And this isn't graffiti. God emblazoned the name of the 12 disciples right into the wall of heaven. What a beautiful picture of the Old Testament covenant and the New Testament covenant working in harmony together. And God's got it right there at the entrance of heaven. Now let's see how big this is. Verse 16. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. Anybody here happen to know the largest city in the world today? Shanghai, China. By circumference, miles laid out on earth. But by population, Tokyo, Japan. Those two are dwarfed by the size of the city. John sees this amazing cube. Its length and height and width are equal, 1,500 miles. Actually, in the Greek language, it says 12,000 stadia. The Romans used the stadiums that they competed in at that period of time as a measuring rod. And he says it's 12,000 stadiums in length, 1,500 miles. This cube is shaped just like God shaped the Holy of Holies. Because when God showed up in Israel in the Old Testament and he said, hey, you're going to build a temple for me, and inside the temple I want you to put this thing called the Holy of Holies. If you go back and read it about it in the book of Exodus today, you'll see that it's a perfect cube. That's what God designed for them. That's what he says the new Jerusalem is going to be, this perfect cube. And so we understand that this massive cube city, John's seeing it, it's coming down, and we have to ask ourselves this question, how big does this new planet have to be to sustain this enormous city? Well, then your mind could go back to Canis Majoris again, that monster star that we saw. Our God is capable of making things way, way bigger than planet Earth. Go with me now to verse 18 and see what the materials are. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And it goes on to tell us that there's jasper, and there's sardonyx, and there's chalcedony, and there's emerald. See, God's a fan of precious stones too. He created them. If you love jewelry, you're being biblical. God is the one that created that stuff. And it's the scene is breathtaking beauty. What he's describing here is a spectrum of dazzling color, light penetrating through it, which tells me this. Our God is a God of beauty. Our God, loves, he just loves to lavish us with his beauty because he's making this city for you. Do you remember what Jesus said? I go to prepare a place for you. Look with me on the screen. John 14, 2, for I go to prepare a place for you. Can you say this with me? He's preparing it for me. Let's say that together. For me. It's for me. I have an inheritance. It's just waiting for me. 
Verse 21 says this, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city is pure gold like transparent glass. Now, apparently God's big on gated communities because he's got this big gated area, okay? Monster pearl gates at the entrance. Every time I see this, I think of Dorothy approaching the the land of Oz, okay? She's got the lion and, you know, those other two dudes, okay? And, And they're getting to the Emerald City, and they see this massive green door, and they come up to... um wait for the door to be open for him, but there's a sign on the entrance. You remember that? I don't know why the producers threw that in, but there's a little sign on the door that says, doorbell's broken, please knock. Okay? God's gates are open. The gates are always open, according to what you're going to see in just a minute. And there are massive doors just like in the land of Oz, but these are made of one single pearl. Now, I can appreciate this because when my wife and I were dating and we went looking for wedding rings and we were engaged, um, I... I couldn't afford much, you know, broke college student, going through flight school, spent all my money on airplane stuff. And so I didn't have a lot of money to spend, but we're going to different jewelers. And this jeweler keeps trying to convince me that this is the one I'm supposed to buy that my wife wears today. And it's got one diamond in the center and what he called four diamonds around it, okay? But they're chips. I mean, just to be honest with you, they're really just like flakes of a diamond, but he called it a five diamond ring. Well, I beg to differ with him because they're chips. These are not chips. This is one gigantic pearl in this 1,500-mile wall, and there's three of these on each wall. And the wall, we're told, is translucent gold. It's not a product familiar to us on here on planet Earth, but everything is transparent to let God's glory just blaze through it. What's the next thing he sees in verse 22? He said, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Now, that's natural. John's a first century Jew. It's going to be the first thing that he's going to look for because in antiquity, every city of any importance had at least one temple because as long as there has been man on planet Earth since Adam and Eve, there has been sin. And the need for dealing with sin means going to a temple, to church, to worship God who can forgive us of our sins. But here we discover that there's no temple. There isn't any need for one. Because God is the temple. Why? Well, let's think about the function of the church. We gather together to encourage each other. We gather together to learn from God's word, to sing, to worship something that we can't see. Well, he's there. And we won't need to learn from God's word. You won't have to endure listening to me every week, okay? You've got God who's going to teach you right from his own mouth. So the church won't be necessary. That's why John said there's no temple. Because God is among them. Let's take it one step further. In the very beginning, God walked with man. He was present with us. Scripture says in the cool of the day, he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Man fell. God no longer walked with man. He removed himself from their environment. So in the Old Testament, God shows up and he says, you can build me a dwelling place where you will come and worship me called the Holy of Holies, but you can't stay there because I can't dwell with you I'll just be among you and then God shows up in the New Testament in the church age we understand that God dwells in us through the power of the Holy Spirit but that Holy Spirit is really just a down payment it's a pledge of our future look with me on the screen Ephesians 1 verse 13 you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge 
of your inheritance. See, what's waiting for you, the Holy Spirit, God who dwells within you, is really just a promise. Verse 23, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. It's radically different than planet Earth. We're totally dependent upon the moon. We're totally dependent upon the sun. We need the cycle of light and darkness. But there's no need of a sun and no moon, no radiant heat, no gravitational pull, no light bulb filaments to burn out, no power bills to pay, okay? You have a mortgage payment? God's building you a place, mortgage-free. No need to pay those bills. God is the energy source, and it's blazing with his Shekinah glory. Go with me to verse 24. We're going to end chapter 21 here. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. Now, in ancient walled cities, they closed the gates every single night. Sundown came dark, closed the gates of the city. Why? Keep the intruders and the invaders out. Keep the criminals out. Well, God has this system so secure with angels standing at the gates. There's no need for 911. There's no need for police officers or fire. No locks on your house. Let's just look at a couple verses in chapter 22. Verse 1 says this, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now in the Bible, this river of the water of life is always associated with having its source in God. And now we see it just cascading down from his throne. I don't know how big the throne is, but that's where it is. It's this dazzling, sparkling stream with a constant flow, and it flows right down through the middle of the street. Now, what we understand in the Greek language, the way that it's been written, is that the river flows down the center and the streets are on either side, but straddling it with a massive root system is this tree of life. Well, we haven't seen that since the Garden of Eden. We saw that a couple weeks ago. God said, you will not eat from the tree of life, or you will live forever, and that will be a problem. So God barred man from eating from the tree of life. He put angels at the entrance of the garden, said you can't go back in there. And now it appears again here in the book of Revelation, this tree of life. And it spreads its root system all along the river, meaning it's straddling either side of the river. I'm thinking like the giant sequoias in California in my mind, this massive tree. Yet it's covered with fruit. I have never seen a fruit tree in my life that has 12 kinds of fruit on it. Anybody here? I'm, I'm seeing one with two where somebody did some grafting and put pears and peaches on the same tree but I've never seen 12 kinds, that's God. Now that means we can actually eat in heaven. I'm kind of counting on that. How about you? Okay. Now we know that the angels, when they came to visit Abraham and Sarah, they sat down and had a steak dinner with them. They had a meal. Abraham prepared a lamb for them. We know that when Jesus came back in his resurrected body after Easter morning, he sat down with the disciples on the beach and had fish. So we see individuals in their glorified form eating. I'm kind of thinking we're going to be eating. God's got this fruit tree there, 12 kinds of fruit. We're told there's going to be the marriage supper of the lamb, a big feast that goes on for a long time. So I'm not sure it's going to be chocolate, but I'm good with whatever God cooks for us, okay? So inside we've got like this beautiful garden. 
paradise restored. What was lost in the beginning is back again. Verse 3, this is where it begins to end. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Now, regardless of how fascinating it is that our planet Earth is going to evaporate or that the heavens will disappear in a moment, regardless of how fascinating it is that there's gold walls and gold streets and these 12 jeweled foundation stones, this is the most fascinating thing to me. There will no longer be any curse. This is the most dramatic change from present Earth because it's all we have ever known. You and I have grown up with the curse. It's just common to us. But God says there's no longer any curse. It's a removal. So that issue that you're dealing with, there's a removal of it. There's there's no longer sorrow or pain or death. Absolutely no trace of Satan or of the sin that Adam and Eve brought and all our failures. It's gone. But do you notice he says in the middle of verse 3 that his bondservants will serve him forever. So even though you might have this image in your mind that you're going to be sitting on a cloud and sleeping through eternity, that's not God's plan for you. He has purpose, meaning that you're going to serve him. You're his bondservants, and it says you will serve him forever, meaning we're going to carry out a variety of tasks. I, I wouldn't look forward to eternity of just sitting down and being on a cloud and chilling. That, that's not God's plan. As a matter of fact, when you think of Adam and Eve being put in the garden, They were not in the fallen state before they sinned. God said, your work is going to be to tend the garden. So even in perfection, they were working. We're going to be given some responsibility. And the last thing we see is that he says he puts his name on us. Well, what's that? His name is on their forehead, according to verse 3 and 4. What's going on there? That's ownership. That's possession. Moms and dads, when you checked in your children downstairs in the children's ministry program today, They printed off a little form. You put a sticker on your child, and they gave you a copy of it, and that means that that one belongs to me. That child is mine. Nobody else can take it. That one is mine. So we think of this when God says, I've got my name written on their forehead. That means possession. He owns us, and no one can ever change that. Here's where it ends, verse 5. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of a light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Who's the they? It's you. Those who have that inheritance. He says it three times in that verse. You're the they. We're the ones that get to inherit this. And it's fantastic. We're not just serving, but we're reigning. So today we understand concepts about God, but the truth of the Bible is we're looking through a glass dimly. It's kind of foggy. That's what Paul said. We can't really understand, but we have these descriptions. Well, here's the truth. We haven't even begun to see. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says this, As it is written, There are things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. I don't know about you, but my mind can imagine some pretty amazing things. And God says, you haven't even begun to imagine what I have in store for you. It hasn't even entered your mind. Your heart can't even dream it. But there's an inheritance. The reason this has been written down for us is these words have been given to give us hope, 
to excite us, to build a sense of anticipation. So we understand it's way more than a story. It's more than words on a page because our God cannot lie. So here's the image I want to leave you with. Remember three weeks ago we talked about in Psalm 33 that Scripture calls God the the star breather. He just blows stars out of his mouth. This star breather has built this amazing inheritance for you. And apparently it's still under construction. It's not done yet. He's preparing it for us. But that same one who breathes out stars, who can build this amazing city, is the same one who cradles you in the palm of his hand and wipes away the tears from your eyes. That's our God. How great our future new hope. We need to be reminded of those things. Is that worth singing about? Absolutely it is. So let's pray together. Ask God to seal this in our hearts so we not forget it. Would you do that with me? Father, we we come before you as a group of people who are going to ask you to seal these promises in our heart because the potential is that we will forget. And and when problems come tomorrow or this afternoon, the bill comes due, relationship goes south, the illness comes, God, we, we need to be reminded of what the inheritance is that's waiting for us. But Father, I ask through the power of your Holy Spirit, and that's the only way it can happen, that you will remind us throughout the course of this week ahead and in the weeks to come of what you have laid aside for us as an inheritance, something that we will receive. Father, we would be content with that right now, just knowing that we could recall that to mind anytime we need it. Thank you, Father, for this hope and for this promise that will not perish or fade. It's in Jesus' name we thank you. Amen and amen.